It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Tuesday, June 8th, 2021, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. Good evening, I'm Claudio Mendoza. A recent investigation into violent text messages among police officers in Eureka, California, has resulted in a top supervisor being placed on leave and more text messages have surfaced. The California Report has the details. After a look at local headlines and weather, Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about Operation Unite and about the Get Out Plan. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. And it's the KVMR Evening News here for you. And joining us on the line right now is Pascal from Ubinet. And Pascal, what's the latest on the Intenco fire? Well, there's good news. The um, fire activity has greatly, greatly diminished. After. Well, once the winds have uh, stopped, uh, it became much easier, and they uh, have a handle on it, meaning that the forward progress of the fire has been stopped. Uh, retardant lines are holding, and there is a plethora of fire agencies that are working the fire. For now, the evacuations are still in place, so there, there's been no change, but uh, that is probably going to change uh, before before it's, before darkness, shall we say. Okay. And uh, how many people have actually been ev- evacuated, and, and from when, where? We, uh, we don't have a complete count. Uh, there's there's people in the in the Waldo area that have been evacuated, then uh, some on Beale Air Force Base proper. Some of the housing they were, but they are still on base. And uh, also, PG&E has reduced the fire. The fire there was a power outage for about 200 people in the fire area that has been reduced to 13 now. Uh, they have to replace uh, a couple poles, and they are working on that. And the last we heard was 10% contained, but I'm uh, expecting a substantial uptick on containment very soon. Oh, very, very good. Uh, now, maybe, can you tell us what the difference is between a uh, an evacuation advisory, an evacuation warning, and uh, and I believe an actual evacuation? evacuation? Okay. So advisories and warnings are basically the same thing. It's there's a fire. It is in the area. Be ready to evacuate. That's you know that's when you pull out your go bags, your pet carriers, uh, and make sure that you have everything. And the order that means leave now. And that's when the two tone sirens on law enforcement and fire engines and they come knocking on your door and you get the code red alerts and that means we seriously leave now don't don't wait just go okay um now this fire is at what about 700 acres at this point well it's estimated at 700 acres but it hasn't been mapped so that normally what happens is that the, the fires will they will start out. This one, the first report we got was, oh, it's about three acres. It's in grass, and of course it was incredibly windy. So then it kept on growing, and the last estimate was 700 acres, but it could also be just 400 or 500 acres. But one way or the other, it was uh, 
definitely a wake up call that this the grass i mean it is so dry and plus the winds did not help the, the winds pushed as fire to the north and to the north northeast so towards beal and uh, the spenceville wildlife area and then the winds died down and that's when they were able to to get retardant lines in there that hold and uh, get the dozers in there and, and just get these lines done and meanwhile the engines uh, they were doing evacuation structure protection uh, so far, we know of one uh, home that uh, was reported destroyed and one damaged, which is amazing because that fire went very fast. And at some point, it had a column that started rotating a little bit. Hmm. Now, um, any idea on how the fire started at this point? Uh, the first report that came in was uh, a vegetation fire with a couple vehicles involved. So we don't know if the, it was the if the the cars caught fire and it spread to the grass, or if something in the grass the grass started and caught the caught the cars. So we don't know that yet. Right now, they're they're still trying to get containment on the fire, and then the cause is probably going to come later. Okay, and when do you expect the next uh, containment update? Um, they're probably mapping the fire right now, so. We might have something six thirty seven o'clock we might have an up uh, an update with with new containment figures but it's it's really looking good i mean looking at the cameras it is looking very good and there there were some ah, evacuations and, uh, hey actually here here we here we go eight hundred and fifty acres twenty five percent contained okay so that um, goes up considerably from ten percent yeah well it's twenty five percent now it's yeah and at 850, really, 850 acres, so it, it's a pretty yep. good, it's a good, good uh, the biggest blaze we've had here so far this year, and hopefully will be the biggest we have here this year, <laughs> as we're knocking uh, on wood yeah. in the studio. <laughs> yes, <laughs> do, please do, please do. And so for now, um, like I said, the evacuations are in, still in place, and uh, people can go to the... Um, temporary evacuation center at the Wheatland Community Center, which is on 101 C Street in, Wheat- in Wheatland. And large animals and livestock, they can be taken to the Yuba County Posse Arena on Marysville Road in Bra- Browns Valley. And for Beale Air Force uh, Base, uh, all housing residents east of East Garyana in base housing, they were to evacuate to the base gym. Okay. And uh, and so some of those evacuations are pro- probably will be getting lifted tonight. Do you think? Yes. Yeah. I, I yeah. I expect uh, them to be to be lifted once they have uh, once these lines are holding and there is no there is no imminent danger. Then they will. I mean, they really want people to be able to to go back home. When we were talking a little earlier, you mentioned that uh, that that it's possible, but you didn't know if, if for sure if uh, anyone any of the prescribed fires at Beale may have had uh, a good effect on on this fire containment. Yes, they, well, they, they they did because the the large burn that they had on Sunday, uh, twenty two hundred acres, which they completed successfully, uh, that. If the the fire was pushing and that was one flank of the fire uh, that came really close by there, and you know there's there was nothing left to burn, so that's 
that is the the advantage of prescribed fires besides uh, getting rid of uh, grasses and a lot of the invasive grasses and you know things star thistle um, it also in a case like this it, it provided a, a fuel break and, uh, th- and this fire grew pretty fast it seemed like it was going um, picking up about a uh, hundred acres an hour well actually probably it probably did more because let's see it's uh four hours and 850 acres so yeah 200 200 acres an hour okay <laughs> very good <laughs> if but, my math skills are anything <laughs> yeah. um and uh I, it just seems to me like uh, this is this this like you said was is a really is a wake-up call for us here in uh, in both not only Yuba County but Nevada County as well. Any reports of the, the fire actually being in any in, in Nevada County at all? Uh, no, I don't. I don't believe so. Uh, we'll see once we get the perimeter, but I don't think it made it. Uh, it made it that far to the um, to the east. So I, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, but we're Nevada County is pretty close to uh, to, to be. They would, it, Nevada County OAS was definitely monitoring it because the uh, the two uh, zones in Yuba County that were evacuated were right on the county line, so they they were definitely monitoring it. Okay. And uh, anything else about the fire that, uh, that you think our, our listeners should know? Um. So, yeah, we the beginning of June, and it was a grass fire, and it was windy. But the conditions that we are are not uh, early June conditions. They're more like mid-July. So adjust, adjust your own behavior accordingly because everything is incredibly dry, and, you know, and the wind never seems to stop. It's, all, it's always at least a breeze. So anything that can... That, that, Takes uh, anything that starts can take off very rapidly, as we saw with with this fire. Okay, um, and uh, we and we little uh, little piece of news, uh, non fire related, and that is <laughs> yeah. the board of supervisors um, appointed a new um, uh, district attorney today. Yes, they did. Uh, they appointed Jesse Wilson to start on July 11th, which is the uh, the date when the uh, current district attorney, Cliff Newell, is retiring. Uh, and uh, Jesse Wilson, who used to be in Nevada County, went to El Dorado County, will fill out the remainder of Cliff Newell's term, which is all of 21 and 22. Okay. And... Um yeah, and in fact, there will be an, uh, an election for, for it uh, next next June, correct? Yes, next next June there will there will be a, an election, and then on uh, January first, twenty twenty three, the the new attorney, uh, this attorney will will take office. And maybe you could tell us a little bit about the voting today, um, if you could. Uh, I believe that oh, there were two there were two different votes, correct? Well, yeah. So the, the the since it's an elective uh, position, the board of supervisors could not just you know go into closed session and then discuss and then appoint somebody. The final interviews, the final three candidates, uh, had to be done in open session, and so did the voting. And so they had a lot of questions for the the three candidates, 
and uh, some members of the public were there too and asked some questions uh, to the supervisors and some of those questions were then uh, recycled by the supervisors. And uh, finally, they had two rounds of voting. So they had, uh, each supervisor had two ballots and uh, the first round it was uh, uh, two votes for one, two votes for another, one vote for one. And then the and the second round, it was three votes for Jesse Wilson, who uh, is now appointed. Um, he will have to establish residency back in Nevada County because right now he's in El Dorado County. Uh, he will have to do that, and he has to be um, a registered voter and live in Nevada County. Okay. And so he, he has uh, basically a month to. Um, find a place and register to vote so that shouldn't pose a problem do you have do you know which supervisors in that in the final vote uh, voted for Wilson and uh, and the two that uh, I believe voted for uh, you, you know I am I, I I think I do however I had that I had that on one screen and I had the fire on two other screens so I, I'm really I would really like to go back to the video and just make sure that they, that, I, that I get it right. So, but um, it was a three-two vote. However, uh, all the supervisors were uh, very complimentary of the of Jesse Wilson once the vote was taken. So, um, I don't think that there's uh, any. <clears throat> that I don't think there was any uh, acrimony on, on anywhere. Okay. All right. Um, well, thank you very much, Pascal. If there's anything else you want to let us know about, uh, go ahead right now. <laughs> uh, you know, I I think that I think that's it. Uh, 850 acres, 25 uh, percent contained. Great, great work by firefighters, by a lot of firefighters uh, and law enforcement and other first responders. Because uh, I can tell you, in the in the first hour. Um, those resource orders that came into the dispatch, I mean, they that was fast and furious, and uh, uh, be that for engines, for water tenders, for crews, dozers, uh, additional air tankers, helicopters. I mean, at some point there were six air tankers and four helicopters working that fire, including one large air tanker, the tanker 102 from McClellan. So uh, everybody was very, very busy. All right. Well, thanks very much for joining us here this evening, Pascal. All righty. You know where to find me. I do. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I'm sure okay. we'll be, we will be in touch. <laughs> All righty. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Coming up next here on KVMR's Evening News is tonight's California Report. This is the California Report. I'm Lily Jamali. Another Republican lawmaker is considering a run to replace Governor Gavin Newsom in the recall election. Assemblyman Kevin Kiley of Rockland says in a blog post that he's not ready to make a formal step into the race, but he has been meeting with the leader of the effort to oust Newsom from office, who's formed a group that'll advise Kiley on whether he should run. Kiley has been one of the most outspoken critics of the Newsom administration's handling of the COVID-19 pandemic including questioning the governor's emergency powers and executive orders that he's issued. Well, earlier this year, the Sacramento Bee reported an investigation into violent text messages among police officers in Eureka on the North Coast. So far, a top supervisor has been placed on leave. Other cops have left, and there are more text messages. Sac Bee reporter Jason Pohl picks up the story from there. 
these newly unearthed text messages really are in the same vein as what we reported previously, with the added caveat that uh, some of them are, they go even further. For example, there's an exchange where the sergeant and another officer are discussing homeless people, and uh, they often describe them as troglodytes or trogs, basically cave dwellers. And in one instance, I can read it here. It says uh, it's an officer, and he's texting his sergeant and says, you think if we asked nicely, we could get a helicopter crew to do a really low pass over Old Town and decapitate a bunch of trogs? Wow. It's really vile sorts of dehumanizing text messages like that that kind of come up throughout this series of records that we've obtained. So from what you can tell, what's on the table in terms of potential penalties for this kind of language and just sort of, you know, the general approach being taken by some of these officers towards members of their community? That's the big question, I think, right? I mean, whenever you're talking about disciplining officers, there's any number of things that in theory could happen. But as we often see, there's a lot of protections afforded to police officers in California and elsewhere, but especially in California. And so that discipline process is kind of an open question at this point. We know that Chief Steve Watson up in Eureka has a decent amount of discretion about how he wants to mete out any sort of uh, discipline should it get to that point, depending on what the findings of this investigation from this third-party reviewer find. But it should be said that I think the bigger question that a lot of people are really raising concerns about is how do you repair uh, a reputation for a department inside a community that has long struggled with issues of homelessness when these are the types of things that officers are talking about openly with their supervisor on the streets. One of the things that's also really striking is the way that the union has responded. The day that we published this story, uh, a few hours after it went online, the police union up in Eureka released a statement calling the messages abhorrent and saying that they were essentially distancing themselves from any sort of conduct like that, that was not representative of the Eureka Police Department. Now, new documents that we've obtained through a series of records requests show that behind the scenes, the head of the union, Terry Lyles, had actually messaged the sergeant in question in this story, Sergeant Rodrigo Reyna Sanchez, and his partner, who's also an employee at the police department, and apologized to them and said, you know, I'm, I know the timing on this sucks. Uh, I'm so sorry that you're having to go through this. And so it's sort of saying one thing publicly and another thing behind the scenes. Jason Pohl is an investigative reporter at the SACB. Keep us posted on what comes out of this. Thanks, Jason. Thanks so much. Support for the California Report comes from California Healthcare Foundation, ensuring the voices of Californians are heard in California's decisions about health care. On the web at chcf.org slash voices. Paint Care, now with 800 drop-off sites in California where households and businesses can recycle their leftover paint. More at paintcare.org. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. Cities across the state are celebrating Pride Month, and in San Francisco, the original rainbow flag, which hasn't been seen for years, is back in the public eye at the GLBT Historical Society Museum. KQED's Ezra David Romero was at the unveiling. 
Gilbert Baker and a crew of more than 30 people created the first rainbow flag in 1978. During the year that Harvey Milk was supervisor, and Harvey went to Gilbert and he said, we need a new symbol. Terry Beswick is the executive director of the museum. There were probably some drugs involved when Gilbert was on a dance floor. He had an epiphany about a rainbow. After flying in the 1978 San Francisco Gay Freedom Day celebrations, the flag was misplaced after it got water damaged. It was recovered in 2019 and now sits under glass at the museum. San Francisco Mayor London Breed spoke at the unveiling. It's not just about LGBTQ history. This is American history. And it's important to recognize it in a way that elevates the conversation. Elevating LGBTQ voices is why the rainbow flag was created, said Gilbert Baker's friend Charles Beale. Baker passed away in 2017. I wish he was here. He would be looking a little more fabulous than me, probably wearing a dress and heels. <laughs> the rainbow flag isn't just colorful lines on a sheet. The original flag had eight rows, each representing hope, safety, and peace for LGBTQ people around the globe. Today in Tehran, people are running out in the streets with rainbow flags and running because they're afraid to be caught. But they're out there trying to change the planet. The iconic flag is a reminder of both the pain and joy queer people live through. Gilbert said, no, do never fly it at half-staff, never take it down. It means too much to too many people who don't have what we have. Now the once forgotten original rainbow flag is on display at the museum in San Francisco's Castro District. For the California Report, I'm Ezra David Romero. For the first time, the pride flag will be flown at Fresno City Hall, but the decision to do so wasn't without controversy. Fresno Mayor Jerry Dyer initially rejected the move, saying it might create division in the community. He was also concerned about the exclusion of religious flags at City Hall. But after speaking with members of the LGBTQ community, Mayor Dyer decided to switch course, saying he was moved after hearing their stories of feeling marginalized. And that is the California Report for this Tuesday. I'm Lily Jamali. Thanks for listening. And looking at regional weather, for Grass Valley and Nevada City tonight, mostly clear with a low around 43 degrees. Tomorrow should be sunny with a high near 65. For Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, also mostly clear with a low around 31. Tomorrow, mostly sunny, with a high near 55. And for our friends in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight will be mostly clear as well, with a low around 49. Tomorrow should be sunny, with a high near 74. Next up, Paul Emery talks with hydrogeologist Steve Baker about Operation Unite and about the Get Out Plan. This Water News with Steve Baker is supported by Clearwater and Filtration on Rough and Ready Highway, Grass Valley. Welcome back to KVMR, Steve. Always um, happy to be here. Steve, you've talked a lot about Operation Unite, and I'm intrigued by it. Can you describe the, to our listeners uh, what Operation Unite does? Yeah, sure, Paul. Uh, 
when there are risks to any water-related concerns in our community, so it could be a risk up here with groundwater quality issues, arsenic, or maybe some of the uh, fecal coliform issues, and there are other issues, or maybe quantity issues. Hey, we're in a drought. You know, wells are starting to go dry, things like that. Conveyance issues like the Delta or even climate change-related problems, wildfires, things like that. Well, Operation, sometimes Operation Unite can be asked to help build the relationships between the public and then the water stakeholders, bring them together and, and solve and help solve that problem with the citizens' involvement in, in it. We all want the good life to continue. So Operation Unite really is a hands-on, it's results-oriented, it's a capacity-building uh, initiative. That, that is what it is. And its big focus is on community values and finding that one goal, which most of the time on big problems, there is no one goal that everyone is in agreement with. We're usually fighting each other because they're, we have separate goals. So, so part of Operation United's mission is to find what that one goal is and find the community attributes, the values, and, and talk through those values in solving that problem. So, uh, that, you know, it, that's the type of thing that it is. Uh, it's working together. Uh, that's that's such a big thing. Our, we, we seem to have a lot of technology at our fingertips, but we don't work very well together. So uh, Operation Night's about bringing people together to solve water-related problems. And, and we do it through through outreach programs. Well, what outreaches have you most recently um, created? Well, I mean, as you know, wildfires have really changed the western states, especially in the foothill communities of the Sierras. We're very aware of this all the time now. And what has made things worse in these last 10 to 15 years is the wind-driven wildfires that create uh, so much more damage and and create loss of life that uh, it's becoming a real big deal. I mean, I think all of us can attest to, uh, you know, noticing the number of red flag days every year. We have to be careful. And then if you even look more closely at that, we're we're finding that these red flag days are happening earlier in the year than they normally do. The the fire season has now spread out and is a contributor through uh, many more weeks than it used to be. Well, well, my neighborhood up on Banner, we had the good fortune to have a retired fire chief there from San Francisco and South Lake Tahoe. And he was he's always about emergency response, making things you know better for us and safer for us. Even he was retired, but even still. So he created and I helped in a minor way at that time, an approach for our neighborhood to implement, uh, you know, as sort of a safety program. We all went out together and we trimmed 10 feet off each side of the private road, all to Banner and and did a whole bunch of other other things. And uh, we have these nighttime fire watches when there's a red flag night with with a lot of wind. And uh, it's worked really well. And so, uh, unfortunately, we lost him. He left uh, and moved to another place. And so I have been implementing and sort of coordinating with our neighborhood, with all our people, and for, for the last two fire seasons. And it's becoming really popular. I'm getting phone calls and people are saying, hey, can you add us to your system, you know, to your program? We, we really want to be a part of that. And so early this year, I was thinking, you know what? This thing is so popular. Why don't I formalize it and create a generic program? And, and make it available to everybody. If it's helping us, I know it's going to help other people, too. So this year, that is what I did. And, and the program uh, named it. It's called the Go Plan, the Get Out Plan, all right? I, I wrote this thing. It's focused on one thing, just one thing, and that is to get you out and safe in the event of a wind-driven wildfire. That's all I care about. I'm not focusing on what you do to make your house more fire-resistant, nothing like that. It's about you getting out. And so this document can be can be downloaded off the Internet. It's in two different parts. Uh, one chapter is if you're an individual, you don't have any desire to 
be the leader for your neighborhood. You just want to make sure your family's okay. Just read that section, the individual section. Or if you do want to make this a neighborhood thing, which I encourage, we're much stronger that way. Then there is chapter three, which is on neighborhoods. You, you pick. It's up to you. Well, aren't people already doing this? Well, they're definitely thinking about it, but thinking and doing are very different things, right? So uh, I imagine in some ways people are, in many ways people aren't doing it at all. It's, it's They're aware of the fire risk, but nothing's being done. Uh, in, in, in emergency response, responses, I think we all may, may recognize this, but it's the little things that become the big things in the event. And if I give you an example of something like that, you know, if you don't have that cell phone next to your bed during a red flag night, you'll never get the message to get out. If you do have that cell phone next to your bed at night, but it's not charged up, you're not going to get the message. And the same outcome would happen. If you have it charged up, it's next to your bed, but the volume's down to zero, you're not going to get the message again. It's the little things that mean the big things. And we, you know, imagine what that would be like. Yeah, there's a critical call coming in, 40 mile per hour winds that night, fire lifted off, fire started. It's going to be on top of you within a half an hour or less. You need to get out now and you never get that message. You're still sleeping at home. We don't want that to happen. Again, I wrote this for one purpose, to save lives. And uh, it's, it's, it's easy to implement. It's really stressing three things. It's, it's talking about three things. Very simple. It's how do you prepare for this evacuation? How do you create good communication? And how do you monitor wildfire condition in the event that it's happening? And how do you evacuate? How do you do this? Situation awareness it's the main item that the fire corps talks about all the time. We would be developing that through uh, you implementing the GOAT plan. Well, how do you uh, think the Operations Unite outreach program could support uh, our communities here in the foothills? Hey, let's start with the uh, GOAT plan, all right? If you go right now to www.operationunite.co, only two letters, C-O, there's a banner at the top that says Disaster Preparedness tab. So you'll hit the Disaster Preparedness tab, and you'll see right away there's a Go Plan button. Download the 10-megabyte PDF file, okay, and then peruse through it. You're going to read it, read it over and, and make that decision on doing it either for yourself, implementing for yourself. Make it your own plan. That's how it's designed. You just uh, read a paragraph, decide if you want to do that paragraph. When you've done it, you check it off, move to the next paragraph. It's very simple to do. Uh, that's that's one thing, but you know we you know this is the water, <laughs> the water news, right? And wildfires and waters do have a connection here, but uh, there are other types of programs as well within Operation Unite. And there's an individual well program known as the Know Your Water program. There's a neighborhood program. There's a spring program. It's focused on reducing your risk to loss, and also you don't want to lose your property value, surprisingly. So uh, it, it addresses all of those things. So remember, these are changing times, right, because of climate change and population. So we need to build a safety net for ourselves. And that's what these outreach programs uh, initiate and help you do. We help you so our community can also uh, be safe. The family's safe, the community's safe. That's Operation Unite. Steve, thank you so much for all the work you do. Oh, you're welcome. Managing groundwater is Steve Baker's career and passion, and that has led him into working on all water sources and supplies. This has been another conversation with KVMR's water guy, Steve Baker. We close tonight with a commentary by Mark Cunaberti. Welcome to another edition of Money Matters. My name's Mark Cunaberti. 
The economic effect from COVID-19 has been devastating. In my opinion, the response from the government has been equally distortional. I've always been against the shutdowns. Never should have happened. The virus has paid no attention to them, and the countries that have had severe restrictions fared no better in the long run than those who did not shut down. Opinions and studies vary on this fact, however. Yet here we have Japan, who were the mask kings, and they've had two vicious resurgence in cases, albeit the world does seem to be quieting down at least a bit. With everything opening up, however, it will be interesting to see if another spike is in the cards or if the winter flu season causes more COVID cases. With the vaccine comes some sort of peace of mind, I suppose. But once again, Americans find themselves at polar opposites on that as well. A good portion of the country says they won't get a shot. Others debate which shot to get. Still another debate rages around a vax passport, which are possible travel or attendance restrictions based on whether one can show a vaccination card or not. Your papers, please? The vaccination card I have seen looks like something cooked up on a Word document with hand-scribbled notes, numbers, and a name. Deemed so important, the card itself looks like a typical government rush job. Honestly, my graphic artist in two hours on a good computer could put out something better. There's no mag strip or anything resembling official on it, except a CDC logo. One could copy the thing and replace the information and produce a hundred of them inside of an hour. Considering California is making everyone get a new and improved driver's license, which replaces the almost previous bulletproof one, the new one is even more tamper-proof and almost impossible to duplicate, I am told. Not so the vaccination card. Many institutions and workplaces are offering perks and even requirements for showing a vaccination card. Some companies are having you upload a copy, as are some other entities. The newsroom here made a bet we could upload a fake one to almost any entity and it would be accepted. We discussed just that with our team and possibly uploading one to a site and maybe to a private company with some bogus information on it to see if they pass muster. We would notify the entity it was bogus once we get it back, if we indeed attempt this. The web says it's a felony duplicating a government ID, but there's some money and a morbid curiosity here writing on the outcome, so we're thinking about it. I'll let you know what the outcome is if we decide to proceed. We obviously have to be careful here. We don't want to break any laws. Supposedly a lot number along with corresponding recipient ID is logged somewhere. Lot numbers are available on the web, although I can't see how all these hand-scribbled cards from thousands of little pharmacies and vaccination locations could possibly be centrally recorded somewhere. Seeing as there is a lottery in states around the country for getting a vaccine, and the California system supposedly automatically enters you if you've had a shot, I would say there must be some sort of database somewhere. How accurate it is remains to be seen. Speaking of incentives, some are asking if the vaccine is so great, how come we have to pay people to take it? Sounds like a script out of some futuristic Big Brother movie. Are they injecting Martian DNA into our bodies? How about tiny tracking nanobots. And finally, economics aside, the vaccine does seem to test the very definition of freedom and liberty. Liberty was once brilliantly defined as one has the right to do as they please as long as it doesn't infringe upon the rights of another. Vaxxers say your refusal to vaccinate violates the right to be in a healthy and disease-free society. 
while anti-vaxxers state it is their right not to be forced to inject something into their bodies. I would add something as new and as untested as a COVID vaccine. Remember, on average, most vaccines take years to be approved. Not so with these vaccines. You also must sign an acknowledgement of taking an unapproved vaccine, of which these are, and a waiver of liability before you get any of the injections. Hmm. In conclusion, because I have some high-risk family members, and out of respect for my many clients, both my wife and I have been vaccinated. That's it for today's Money Matters. The opinions expressed here are my opinions only and may not necessarily reflect those of this station, its staff, management, or underwriters. No guarantees are made to any claims or statements in this newscast. Our website is moneymanagementradio.com where everything is free. Our way of saying thank you for listening to your community radio station. I hold California insurance license OL34249 and I'm a Medicare approved agent in the state of California. My name is Mark Cunaberti. Thanks for listening. That's the news for tonight, Tuesday, June 8th, 2021. We get support from Green Acres Nursery and Supply at Isley's, a full-service nursery in Auburn since 1932. Now part of the Green Acres family, offering generations of garden know-how and products for landscapes in low-water years. IDigGreenAcres.com Well, the latest from Ubinet says that Cal Fire is mapping the fire at 850 acres and 25% contained. Good progress is being made, and so we won't be giving you any more updates until tomorrow morning unless conditions warrant. Stay tuned right here to your community radio station, KVMR-FM. My name is Claudio Mendoza. Thanks very much for listening. Have a good evening. And now we join Food Sleuth, already in progress.